My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 64 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring this fascinating conversation with Alexander Biner, who is a journalist and author of the newly released book, The Bigger Picture, How Psychedelics Can Help Us Make Sense of the World. Alexander is an executive director of Breaking Convention, a UK charity that hosts Europe's largest conference on psychedelic science, and he runs a popular substack called The Bigger Picture, where he writes about popular culture, AI, psychedelics, and systems change. And the name Alexander Biner might also sound familiar to you because he founded a very popular alternative media platform called Rebel Wisdom that explored the cutting edge of systems change and cultural sense-making, a project that he brought to completion in 2022. I brought Ali onto the show to talk about psychedelic sense-making and the bigger picture implications of the emergence of psychedelics into mainstream Western culture. So having a narrative of medicalized, let's say biomedical and corporate psychedelia means that the level of deep social transformation possible is immediately limited because, and this is significant also for the mental health crisis, as it's called, right? Because what it assumes is, it, it starts from the same paradigm that gave us the antidepressant drugs. It's like, we've got a problem, we need to find a drug to fix it. Whereas actually we have a problem and we need to find social transformation to fix it because, you know, socioeconomic disparity, epidemic of loneliness, social media use, we're facing multiple existential threats as a species. And we don't need new drugs to fix that. We need new societies. Psychedelic experience is such an incredible training ground for problem solving, for creativity, for deepening our relationships, for so many things that we haven't yet explored. And that, I think we share that, like, I'm so excited about that because so much of the attention has been on medicalization and not enough, not nearly enough attention has been on what we can actually do if we put our minds to it and develop really solid protocols and actually figure out, okay, well, how do we look at conflict resolution in a completely new way? How do we look at systems change or complexity thinking or creativity or relationships? So that for me is the cutting edge of psychedelics right now. So the frame around them that's containing them and the narrative around them and our expectations around them and what we think they're for changes the experience we have on them. The primary narrative that is paving the pathway for the emergence and acceptance of psychedelic compounds into Western society is the narrative that psychedelic therapy is proving to be quite a remarkable solution to combat the mental health crisis. And considering what we've had to collectively overcome in Western culture, and I'm referring to the magnitude of disinformation that was heavily disseminated during the Nixon era war on drugs, I think this narrative, the mental health narrative, was very helpful and is very helpful, perhaps even fully necessary, to help destigmatize the cultural wide use of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. But I think it's imperative especially at this moment in time, that we start exploring the far-reaching implications deeply embedded in the medical or clinical frame of reference. 
And since we refer to frames of reference or simply frames quite a bit in this episode, I want to take a moment to put a working definition on the table so we're clear on what we're actually talking about here to help set the frame for the conversation. So a very simplified definition, according to cognitive psychology, is that our frames of reference are essentially the set of parameters that define our mental schema. Okay, so in other words, our frames of reference are these very complex, abstract mental frameworks that you use to essentially interpret and understand the world around you. And just like wearing a pair of tinted glasses, your frames of reference significantly influence how you perceive and therefore experience reality. And it's heavily influenced by the culture and the society that you grew up in, the family that raised you, all of your past experiences, etc. So embedded in your frame of reference are these hidden assumptions, these hidden beliefs and biases. So it's as if you've been wearing those glasses on your face for so long that you forgot that they're actually there which is when things start to get a little messy because we don't always see the frame, so we don't always see how it's influencing everything. Now, to be clear, I'm not judging the psychedelic therapy model or medical frame. I actually think it's absolutely necessary for some people. Emphasis on some people. And I think Alexander and I share a very similar perspective on this, and you'll soon hear just how excited I was to talk with him because we both share a deep passion for these discussions to encourage people to widen their frames of reference. And ultimately, that starts by becoming aware of our frames in the first place, because as I mentioned, only then can we explore the impact that our frame of reference is having on our direct experience of these medicines in the first place. And Alexander takes this understanding to a whole new level because he's spent a lot of time exploring the societal implications of these medicines entering Western culture through this particular frame of reference. And this is really one core aspect of what his book, The Bigger Picture, is really all about. So to intentionally weave a thread through past and yet-to-be-released future episodes— because this understanding of frames of reference is actually foundational to understand the work I'm doing at the intersection of psychedelics and creativity and transformational leadership and just transformation at large, which is why I was actually waiting to release this episode before sharing future episodes on creativity. And for those of you who listened to episode number 62 on psychedelics and the creative process, this was something that I emphasized That the lens through which we explore psychedelics matters. This is what I was referring to. It changes how we think about set and setting. It massively influences how we think about preparation and integration. And of course, influences the psychedelic experience itself. And to add another layer here, it informs the frameworks that we develop to support the different outcomes we might want to aim for. And I think very few people are really cluing into this or illuminating the magnitude of the implications of this. So this feels like an appropriate segue to officially announce my upcoming program called Transilience, which is a six-month training program for psychedelic coaches, 
integration guides, and microdosing mentors who want to learn my transilience framework for supporting others on the path of psychedelic transformation. And I've been working really hard on putting this program together, which is also why I haven't put out an episode in quite a few weeks now. So thank you for your patience. I, alongside Alexander, who mentions at the end of this podcast episode that he's really dedicated to quality over quantity. And I share that same dedication. And I don't want to take up a lot of time sharing all the details of this program, but I will be putting out a bonus episode specifically on Transilience very soon. And you can also learn about the program by going to lauradon.co forward slash Transilience. And this is a six-month program starting in September, and it's through application only. And the reason that that was a good segue was because I wrote a very in-depth module on the neuroscience of perception. This is a module I've actually been teaching for quite a few years now because it's foundational to understanding and supporting others on the journey of transformation. But I've added an entire section on the implications that are cognitive frames of reference and the language we choose to describe medicines, which we also touch on in this episode, the implications that has on our personal practice exploring altered states of consciousness, but perhaps more importantly, the implications that it has for us guides and coaches and people supporting others on the path. And this is also very applicable to psychedelic content creators and contributors to the space. It's really important that we become aware of these hidden frames of reference, and we can actually learn to leverage this understanding to strengthen our thought leadership and carve a niche for ourselves in the psychedelic space. And to get meta level here for just a second, this is exactly what I've been doing in the psychedelic space. And in Transilience, I'm going to teach my frameworks, and then I'm also going to teach my methods for developing my frameworks which is one of the reasons I think this program is truly unique. Okay, so in this episode, pay particular attention to all the people that Alexander references, the models he refers to, as well as the core concepts that he applies from one domain to another in just this episode alone. Taking a concept from one domain and applying it to another is a core creative thinking skill. Alexander is well-studied and takes a multidisciplinary approach to sense-making. These are the hallmarks of a good thought leader. And these are the things that stand out to me when I'm speaking to other people who are also dedicating their lives to this path. You can also find every single person he references and all the resources mentioned, including a full list of topics that we cover by going to the show notes or lauradon.co forward slash 64. FYI, mild spoiler alert, we didn't get to artificial intelligence in this conversation. We just, we didn't make it there. But we agreed 100% we are going to do a part two follow-up to this conversation. So after listening to this episode, if you have questions for Alexander, please leave me a voice memo by going to memo.fm forward slash PLP. Or feel free to send me a message on Instagram at D. I highly encourage you to get a copy of his book, The Bigger Picture. It's an excellent read. I also encourage you to subscribe to his Substack. Every article he releases is in-depth and very well written. 
Also, you'll hear Alexander reference an extended DMT state in this conversation, and he's referring to the clinical trial that he participated in at Imperial College. This is a parallel narrative that he weaves quite eloquently through the book. Usually DMT is relatively short-lasting, so this particular DMT study wanted to see what happens when you extend the experience by a factor of four, to see what happens if you pump DMT continuously directly into the bloodstream for half an hour. But I didn't want to spend a lot of time going over all the details of the trial, especially because he's been speaking about it quite a bit on a lot of other podcasts. And honestly, it's just less interesting to me than just diving into the complexity of sense making. And so he does refer to it a few times. And I just wanted to mention the context of what he's referring to. Lastly, this episode is brought to you by Hemp Lucid. I personally like to partake in a range of plant medicines. That includes CBD and functional mushroom medicine. Hemp Lucid makes very high quality CBD gummies. I love their products. I especially love their CBD gummies and they have one that helps to reduce stress and another one that aids in sleep. And just FYI, y'all, these gummies are very strong. And if you'd like to get 15% off their products, you can go to hemplucid.com and use code LIVEFREE at checkout or click on the link in the show notes. And it was such a pleasure to see the Hemp Lucid team and Chase at Psychedelic Science in Denver. And it was also so nice to see so many of you there as well. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, if you'd like to learn more about my upcoming program called Transilience, go to lauradon.co forward slash transilience. And you can also find that link in the show notes. All right, friends, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alexander Biner as much as I did. So I've never started an interview with the way that I want to start with you today. It's like the what's behind mystery door number two. You know, the the conventional pathway would be asking you why you wrote your book, which was fantastic, by the way. But I, I kind of want to take a different route because you hold such a wide frame on the psychedelic landscape. And so I'm very excited to wade through the deep end with you here and to pull apart the threads of complexity. But let's start with a little rapid fire questioning. And so I'm going to tee you up and then you fill in the blank. That sounds great. Yeah, that's fun. I'm up for it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Psychedelics are powerful tools for. The first word that comes up is transformation, but I also think they can be powerful tools for disintegration. So I think they're powerful tools for not just amplifying what's inside us, but for opening a myriad of doorways that we're invited to step through. And those doorways can go in, in all sorts of different directions. I like it. Even the words tool actually spins the conversation in, in an interesting direction. And I, I want to talk about the power of words that form our conceptual frames and the, the, the maps that we use for sense making. Um, and I've been thinking about that a lot lately, like what the word tool means and a tool for sense making even. So I, I appreciate that disintegration as well. Um, okay, so 
Spanning the last 60 years or so, what's your favorite secondary name that's given to psychedelic? I'm, I'm, I'm setting you up with psychedelics, but maybe you actually use another name primarily as your primary word of preference to point to these complex compounds. Yeah, I, I would. Two words popped into my head. I generally use psychedelic. One was entheogen, generating the god within. But the word that actually really popped up was psychotomimetic. So the with the very early name given to psychedelics in the sort of 50s, because they were thought to mimic psychosis. And the reason I like that is because I think there's something, I'm very inspired by the work of Peter Kingsley, who's a kind of scholar and somewhat of a mystic. And like, like people like Krishnamurti has kind of pointed out that there's something very interesting about the idea of insanity, especially in a world which is in itself claiming to be sane, but behaving in insane ways. So there's something about what McKenna used, Terence McKenna used to call unsane, right? So in some ways, breaking free of what is quite a pathological cultural framework very often, particularly my culture, I'll say sort of Western technological culture, breaking free of that into something else has has a flavor of of insanity to it but if it can be held in the right way and, and applied in the right way and still grounded in reality it can be incredibly transformative so so that word it doesn't get a lot of airtime anymore but i find it interesting and how much do you think that frame of just the word and the label influences the experience of it? You know, and it's even interesting to illuminate that we categorize quite a lot of, of compounds in the, the sort of category of classic psychedelics even, but yet they are actually slightly different in their structure. And in some ways, I do think that there is diversity. Like, I can't really sit here and say that, you know, the intelligence behind LSD is the same intelligence behind the DMT in Bufo versus ayahuasca versus synthetic or 5-MeO DMT. So I, I'm curious your perspective on that in terms of the differences and do the differences offer different functional attributes that we can pull, you know, in terms of a tool that's used in different settings or for different applications? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I think it has a huge effect, what we call them, massive effect on on how we experience them, because that, as I know, the topic we're both interested in is it provides the frame through which we're looking at. It. It's like the glasses, the frame of the glasses we're putting over ourselves. Now, the molecules and medicines have their own, in my view, vibe, let's call it attitude intentionality to them whether or not we want to you know what wherever you sit on the kind of spectrum of what you think reality is whether you you see you know ayahuasca as an entity and, and, a, and a kind of teacher in her own right or whether you see these as molecules that open up just internal states doesn't really matter because in a sense they are all like you're saying i think they are quite different they have a different phenomenology to them so there's a different way of navigating them like going into the dmt space is very different to going into the psilocybin space even the extended state dmt experience is different to ayahuasca because you don't have the harmine and harmaline it's qualitatively mm -hmm. different similar definitely similar but there's there's a nuance and a difference to it which is in itself some something that's fascinating to me and you know the other thing that's very important i think is to look at there, there's this big myth 
in in spiritual communities and in the new age which is that all these different practices like meditation and yoga and tantra they all take you ultimately to the same place and i think that's totally not true i don't think they take us to the same place i think ultimately there is a deep interconnectedness and so in some sense it's speaking to that but a kundalini awakening experience is not the same as a zen samadhi experience of, of dissolving into everything and, and this is this is something that uh, there's a trish blaine who's a coach who i've been working with for a number of years who i mentioned in the book but she helped me prepare for my dmt extended state she has this model called the four forces which is very i found very useful for this because it helped me sort of untangle and look at okay wait a minute the dmt experience for example rick strassman so one of the original dmt researchers he was expecting that samadhi experience like people were going to become one with everything and their individual identity was going to melt away and they got something they got a whole lot of something it was full of entities and intentionality and missions and you know, entity saying, oh my God, you've, you've arrived. We, we don't have much time. We want to show you something. That's completely different experience and say a 5-MEO experience, 5-MEO DMT, which for many people is this very profound connection to a non-dual, to reality as is, right? So those are not the same. And psilocybin teaches in a different way. And from my understanding, even though I don't have any connection or experience with it, Iboga teaches in a, in a very different way as well. So all of these experiences are different states and they require actually different state training to be proficient in actually how we navigate them. And if we think they're all the same, then we're going to be confused at the least when we encounter what is really quite a different realm in each of them that we're going into. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's so much to unpack there. You said the word entity. That's a salient word that jumps out to me. And I also just want to illuminate and emphasize the word state training, because that's also something that I talk a lot about in my work that, for example, you know, you sit in your first ayahuasca ceremony. It's very disorienting. It's hard to stay cognitively coherent. You have sea legs and it's hard to even like get up and go to the bathroom and someone might help you with that. But then if you sit consistently over the years, you start learning the songs and then you start maybe playing music and start writing music. And then actually over time, you can get very good at uh, a skill set. It's a skill set to navigate these altered states of consciousness. And the map and the terrain is different based on the medicine or we could swap the word drug under a Western frame or a sacrament under a different frame. And it is a skill set. And I really love emphasizing that for people because, and I use the music example specifically because we think about music in that way. It's very um, apparent example to use, like we can track that progress, but then we can also apply it to cognitive thinking skills or creative cognition. So I like that you emphasize that it is a state specific learning. And when I look at, you know, psychedelics and creativity literature, I'm, I think to myself, well, but that person might not have been trained and have developed the skill set. So to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, well, psychedelics don't help enhance, let's say, divergent thinking. But if you train someone and they actually have a practice and that a practice evolves over time, they can actually become even better at divergent thinking than you can in waking consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, on that, that this is tapping into one of the things that really excites me so much about the idea of state training, not just with psychedelics, but definitely psychedelics are perhaps the most exciting, is that what 
cognitive science, research from cognitive science suggests, and particularly the research of a researcher called Barbara Tversky, that we use the same cognitive machinery for, for example, talking about ideas as we do for moving through space physically. So we'll say like, oh, let's take a step back for a moment and just look at this question or, oh, I really look up to that person. These are all like embodied motions, right? And that's just pointing at something really much more profound, which is that we are basically always taking what we're doing in one state and then applying it in some way to another. And the more proficient we get in the state, the more that it goes from a state to a trait. And so the, you know, for example, you know, I, when I did the, recorded the audio book for the bigger picture, it was like a day after I came back from Belfast. So I'm, I play traditional Irish music and I was playing, there was like an Irish music festival and I was playing, I played the flute, which is relevant to this. So I was playing the flute like nonstop for like three days. And once we started recording, I realized like, oh, I feel like I'm speaking differently than I normally do. And I'm getting like, I'm really like dropping into this experience and I'm finding it really fun and interesting. And there's something about the tonality, which just feels really easy. And it was only afterwards that I realized, well, of course, like playing the flute is all the same skills, but in a different domain to reading an audiobook, right? There's tone, there's also being in a flow state. So it's state specific. It's in Irish music, you sit in a pub and play, but it's not like jazz. You basically either know the tune or you don't, and it's really fast very often. And so there's also all these different skills you have to develop, like you're playing and you have to switch from one tune into the next one at speed. And that's taken me like, you know, that takes years and years and years to develop but that skill as well to be adaptive and fluid in the moment then also applies to solving problems in the real world that that kind of present themselves and also being in a high intensity environment and navigating it so in the same way psychedelic experience is such an incredible training ground for problem solving for creativity for deepening our relationships for so many things that we haven't yet explored and that I think we share that, like, I'm so excited about that because so much of the attention has been on medicalization and not enough, not nearly enough attention has been on um, what we can actually do if we put our minds to it and develop really solid protocols and actually figure out, okay, well, how do we look at conflict resolution in a completely new way? How do we look at systems change or complexity thinking or creativity or you know relationships so that for me is the cutting edge of psychedelics right now and increasingly i think will be in in the future okay i love this so let's circle back to this idea that if i hand you something and say this is going to induce a psychotic state versus i hand you something and say this is going to allow you to come to know god or i hand you something and say this is a profound catalyst for creativity or a, let's apply the empathogen you know name to it so this is interesting to me because this comes into neutrality versus priming conversation and which is a really actually complex. And so we can immediately sort of jump to a conclusion and say, well, we shouldn't prime people, but we are being primed by our frame of reference. And if we say, okay, I value empathy in myself, in leadership, it's a good quality for society. Do you think if we put that lens on it, that then we can 
develop a framework, models, protocols, integration, preparation that actually steers towards that outcome? And do you think that that is ethical, unethical? And I'm going to tie one more note in here. This makes me think of, you know, Stan Groff's emphasis that these are um, nonspecific amplifiers. And is that true? Is that the whole story? Are they really neutral in that way? Or are they guiding us towards something that might be, you know, framed as better, like we become better humans if we're more empathic? I know that's a lot, but you're one person that I can trust to hold that. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, no, fascinating. I'll answer the last part first. I think they are non-specific amplifiers, but I don't think they're only non-specific amplifiers. And I do think there's a directionality to the experience. And this is, you know, nothing is really neutral. And to that point, it's impossible not to prime someone. It's not possible. And anyone who thinks they're not is kidding themselves. And also, you know, this is research that my wife, Ashley Murphy-Biner, is doing at the moment, looking at the difference between the models of psychedelic therapy, which is very popular in the US where it's like the therapist is just there as a guide. And like, I've heard people say, yeah, you know, we shouldn't even call it a guide because we're not guiding anyone anywhere. We're just holding space and we're sort of basically invisible. And the medicine is doing all the work. The molecule is doing all the work. And then you have psycholytic therapy in which the therapist is much more active and actually talking to people. I, I think both of those have truth to them, but I think the psychedelic side of it and this is kind of where where Ashley's kind of someone arguing as well, or or I mean, it's in process. But you know, she's pointing out like the, the, we need to look at the psycholytic side as well because it's really actually very important to understand that directing the experience in some way can be hugely beneficial, especially to what we're talking about, right? Now, the question of ethics is obviously a major one, and in my view, the first thing is that <clears throat> I think the ethical thing to do is uh, is train, give people the tools to stay in their own sovereignty. So their own ability to stay connected to themselves and aware and awake of their own agency so that they're not giving agency away in any way. That's really key. And then also being clear if someone's not familiar with psychedelics, that priming is just something that happens. And to be like, hey, every, because like literally every gesture you make, every word you choose is not another word you've chosen, right? So just being like, look, you're, this is a very sensitive experience where you're very susceptible to the frame that's being given to you. Or, and, and in a sense, it's not even giving a frame, it's providing a frame because you, you, you we're kidding ourselves if we say we're not going to provide any frame. Like mm-hmm. it's just going to be totally neutral. It won't work. It's also not a safe container for people. You can't just give no frame. But what I think is very important is instilling an attitude of curiosity more, more than anything else. Because it's like, if someone stays curious and connected to themselves, then they have the agency to go, yeah, that frame doesn't really work for me. And of course, as a facilitator, not cramming the frame down someone's throat or making it too much of the process and also making it broad enough to to encompass a lot. So then finally, with that in mind, then I think absolutely we we can create specific experiences and protocols that can, you know, potentially lead us towards, say, deeper problem solving or mm-hmm. or effective conflict resolution processes. Now, they're not going to be magic bullets where you just resolve a conflict through one ceremony or session or that you know we bring a bunch of creative people together and they all come out with 
you know, the, the next art movement like Dadaism or something. I mean, it could happen and that would be amazing. I mean, this is why we should try, right? This is why where people should be be doing this kind of work, which I know you are. Like so so that I think is um I think an implicit in that is that all those people have gathered there for that purpose, right? So in the same way that we kind of gather for anything with a specific purpose from our own desires, I think if we're if there's a creativity focused you know, psilocybin protocol, for example, everyone who signed up for that or is experimenting with that is like, knows they're going in for that reason. And there's a certain priming mm-hmm. of, hey, we're here to do this. And I, I don't think that's a problem. Mm. Yeah. And you give such a great example of this in the book, which I think illustrates what we're pointing to here quite accurately around these tools as uh potential for sense-making and conflict resolution. And so they're applying now, you know, ayahuasca ceremonies in very challenging situations between cultures with Palestine and Israelis. And that's a perfect example of, okay, these substances help us move towards empathy. How can we apply that? How can we then create a protocol, a set and setting, a preparation and integration to amplify that and support that? And I love that you mentioned that in your book. Yeah, and that work is done by Leo Rosman, who's a, a neuroscientist at Imperial, but also a very talented sort of, I would say, like ethnographic researcher on top of that. And Sami Awad, who's a Palestinian activist, and people can check out, I, I describe it in the book, certainly. And they can also check out the, the first paper they published is already out. But actually, the book is the first time I believe that information about the second phase of that study has been published because Leo happened to be my neighbor at the time. <laughs> I sat down with him a day after he got back from when they had taken groups of Palestinians and Israelis out to, you know, to Spain to, to specifically do ayahuasca ceremonies centered on conflict resolution. And I think it's a great example as well because they encountered the complexity of what this work is because psychedelics are pretty much always complex. So, you know, they point to the, like, how at times the idea of we're all one and this what is the conflict anyway because ultimately we're all we're all of one soul in a sense that would come up and that was also kind of like that's kind of like a idea held in many spiritual groups but that idea itself then often could get in the way because it would mask the realities of the conflict and mask the disparity of power dynamics and so that would then come up in this circle and have to be dealt with and I mean, it was fast. It's absolutely fascinating. And so that I think is so exciting and so promising because likewise, you know, with creativity, for example, there's going to be probably elements of, of chaotic expression that come into it potentially and un, unknown and we'll all have to figure out how best to do it and all work together to kind of like share. I think open sourcing like protocols would be the best way to do it to be like, okay, we tried, we, we got out of Blackboard and that was a mistake. That didn't really work. So next time we're going to try, we're going to try this. Who knows? I'm just making, making stuff up. Right. But uh, that I think is going to be, that for me is so exciting and so fun as a prospect. Right. And the, the interesting aspect of this is that it's so iterative and also meta. We go into these experiences to break frame, you know, and breaking frame is actually a powerful creative thinking tool that can help us think creatively and also help us ignite inner transformation. And I want to just circle back around to your point that we can't be neutral here. So I want to like 
illuminate the larger cultural context. And, you know, we've been talking about psychedelic therapy, but just to actually emphasize that this is the primary narrative paving the pathway for these compounds to emerge in our culture at large. And that we forget that that actually is going to have, it is already having a major impact. We can talk about, you know, Western society, the consumerism and for-profit models. And I think that, you know, I call this the Poland era, you know, versus the Nixon era, because, you know, the Nixon era was like full of propaganda. And it's like, I know the this is your brain on drugs, scrambled eggs image that everyone invoked. I think that came a little later, actually, like in the 80s. But now we have the the image in the Poland era is psychedelic therapist guide sitting next to a person with an eye mask on a couch in a box. And this is the image that people conjure up and images are powerful. Framing is powerful. Psychedelic therapy is a frame. And so I'm curious to know, and I know this is this is starting to pull apart the threads of complexity for people who haven't really considered that, you know, what are the implications of it entering Western culture through this narrative in particular? Yeah, this is, a, 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 I think, a really important question. It has pretty significant implications. So, you know, Eric Davis has pointed out, I think really rightly, that the narrative that we have around psychedelics changes the, the, the frame that we kind of then build after we, you know, break frame. It changes what we, what we experience. And, and, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit already the degree to which that you know that narrative affects it is perhaps up for debate but it certainly affects it so having a narrative of medicalized biomedical let's say biomedical and corporate psychedelia means that the level of deep social transformation possible is immediately limited because and this is significant also for the mental health crisis that as it's called right because it, what it assumes is it, it starts from the same paradigm that gave us the antidepressant drugs. Where it's like, we've got a problem. We need to find a drug to fix it. Whereas actually we have a problem and we need to find social transformation to fix it because, it, you know, socioeconomic disparity, epidemic of loneliness, social media use, the, the fact that we're facing multiple existential threats as a species, the kind of decline of any kind of solid religious framework in the West that gives us a kind of base of, of sort of metaphysical meaning. All of that's happening at the same time in this moment in history. And we don't need new drugs to fix that. We need new societies. And if psychedelics only, and this isn't to say they shouldn't be medicalized, or there shouldn't be a narrative of psychedelics that that is also medical, but it's that it shouldn't be the only narrative. And the reason it is the only, the reason it's the most dominant narrative is because there was a very conscious choice by clinicians, medics, activists in the underground over the last 30, 40 years to do a what I call a psychedelic Trojan horse of, okay, we'll sneak them into the culture in this container, this Trojan horse of medicalization, everyone stopping so weird, put on suits, the countercultural transformative revolutionary side of it is not very appealing to corporations or to policymakers. So this all makes sense. I get this strategy. I used to be pretty behind this strategy. The problem with it is that the idea was that once the psychedelics are in culture, 
and we've got the okay, then the Trojan horse will open and all this magic is going to spew out and, you know, transform people, you know, help the mental health crisis. And then perhaps even, which was the promise of, you know, a lot of the psychedelic counterculture that I first encountered when I, you know, got into this in say perhaps 2006, 2007, but really before that was when the medicalization sort of picked up again. So the, the, the promise was social transformation and, and this kind of incredible opening of human potential. The problem with the psychedelic Trojan horse is that with psychedelics, the horse itself is as important as the psychedelics. So the frame around them that's containing them and the narrative around them and our expectations around them and what we think they're for changes the experience we have on them. And that is a huge, huge problem because what we need is other ways of accessing psychedelics, whether that's through retreats or through the kind of protocols we're talking about or through personal use, you know, responsible personal use, religious use, and others, we need this kind of healthy ecosystem of different approaches to psychedelics. The issue is that it's not as simple as saying, okay, great, well, let's have a healthy ecosystem, so we'll make sure there's psychedelic religion, we'll make sure there's this, there's that. It's that in our system, of course, the system has its own incentive structures, and those incentive structures will, by default, try and shut down anything that's not profitable and doesn't maintain the values of the system. So it will, as we already see, hollow out, like what happened with mindfulness and yoga. It's like, oh yeah, let's bring those mainstream. And so we get these cookie cutter, disnified versions of them that go into the mainstream. So like the Lululemification of yoga, right? Someone wants, <laughs> someone said to me recently, I wish I could remember who, but it's a great, great line. And the same thing happened with mindfulness. And that doesn't mean that there aren't also really deep practices going on. There, you know, there's vipassanas happening, there's deep yoga retreats happening. That stuff is still out there. But what it is, the, it's the mainstream vision, it's the mainstream narrative around them. That And so that is a really important thing because I, I think it's such a, I would say travesty or it's profane, let's say, because I, for me, psychedelics are sacred and, and really connect us to something beyond ourselves. It's profane to try and water them down to fit into the system that's the problem in the first place and the system that is that's the the incentive structures of which are leading us to having a mental health crisis in the first place right which becomes very tricky to actually distill how do we create a systems wide change i mean do you think capitalism is going anywhere anytime soon i don't know I don't think we right now have a compelling, an alternative that's compelling enough or an alternative really right now. I think a lot of the people in the systems change communities that I'm involved in, that's what everyone spends most of their time wrangling over and trying to figure out, you know, is it like donut economics or there's yeah. the, the idea of like game B, there's all these regenerative models, but the system is incredibly embedded and powerful now so the question isn't when i think capitalism will stop it's whether it will survive that stop right it's like whether the addiction kills us before the addiction ends by default or whether we find some way to find something new and i think we really can find something new it's just that we we find that through necessity 
often. So we we things have to get to a certain level of have to be untenable in a certain way before we see that that shift. Although also, you know, in systems, sometimes something completely unexpected happens and you know there could be a there could be say the emergence of a new religion on a global scale that sweeps the world in the next 30 years that can radically changes our value system. It's happened before, you know, so we just don't know really. I don't think capitalism in its current form can possibly continue indefinitely. That's that's mm-hmm. certainly true. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or at the same time, a sort of nothing is inherently anything. So it's not. I don't think it's inherently like the big bad. It's it's actually rather than capitalism. I think it's a much deeper value system of the culture that is then exercised through capitalism, which is the idea that the only thing that's real is matter. Nothing else is real. Consciousness isn't real. The quality of experience isn't real. The only thing that's real is stuff. That's the dominant cultural narrative that we've had for the last four or 500 years since the Enlightenment. And it's, it's so empty that it's killing us. Mm. Sometimes when I feel really overwhelmed in the face of like, our system is fucked and it's never going to change. And how are we ever going to make it through this? We're going to need a systems wide collapse. I do think about the an incremental approach. And I do think that we can work with people in prominent positions, which also gets really tricky because then, you know, as you mentioned, and people are talking about it, like the, this, is this going to become an elitist movement? And if it is, and there are a lot of people in positions of power, you know, can they change their mindset? Because, and it comes back down to this, like, is, are they non-specific amplifiers? Do they amplify narcissism? Or is there a guiding loving intelligence that actually opens up people to the mystic beauty of reality and, you know, the way that we are so interconnected. You know, I went to business school, but yet psychedelics have vastly changed that indoctrination and that worldview, even, you know, starting to invest in the stock market when I was just, you know, in my teens. But for the past 20 years, I've been living outside in open air living because that word ecodelics rings true for me in my life. So can we make the case that, OK, actually people in positions of power, if they stick with this path for long enough and deconstruct their mind for long enough and I'll just pin on the side here that there are a lot of people having one LSD, one ayahuasca journey, and then, you know, coming full force into the psychedelic movement, which I'm not judging. I'm just saying that those are shallow roots. It takes a long time to work with deconstructing the mind, a long time, decades. So yeah, just curious, like, can we say that psychedelics can actually gear us towards a better way? And if we see things from an interconnected perspective, one of many, many examples, can we actually incrementally change the systems from the inside out? Yeah, what a great question. I think yes. I think what the trick or one of the tricks might be is psychedelics in combination with a compelling value system or let's say cultural carrier, like a kind of cultural frame which is new and of the times that can carry that, right? Which is kind of what religions did in the Mm -hmm. past, right? They would carry, there'd be a framework around sacred experience true religion rather than like a creed which is just like do these things and this because you have to do this so and you know to your point around 
elite an elite pursuit i think this is a really important question as well and one i really wrangle with because it makes me very uncomfortable as an idea and i think psychedelics should always also be grassroots and democratized because they are really easy to grow right and and there's that you know when i got into the psychedelic world in in terms of like you know i had a podcast in sort of like 2007 2008 about visionary art and at that time there wasn't really social media or it was in very its infancy and it was a really beautiful community of people into psychedelics who would really support each other and have a lot of peer support. And there are some peer support groups popping up, certainly in the UK and I think the US around like, hey, well, there's a lot we can do with, you know, knowing how to safely have the experience, knowing how to grow, all of this. That I think should always be there because that's that's protective that, you know, we have this kind of access. And that's, you know, breaking convention that uh, one of the directors of, you know, we put on big you know europe's biggest psychedelic conference but we're actually an educational charity is, is what we do and that's what kind of drives us it's like okay we're just going through a whole process at the moment to figure out okay what does that actually mean now that the whole landscape has shifted and where do we want to bring that education so the other point around that yeah just on on the question of the elite aspect though i just read a book by peter turchin which came out not long ago called end times and turchin is a historian but he's kind of like a big data historian he has this model called cleodynamics which is like kind of a big data approach to history especially civilizational collapse or or like you know as you know regime collapse and they have really quite a compelling argument to make that the the cause of most changes in in a kind of political systems um, is something called elite overproduction coupled with popular immiseration so elite overproduction is that there's too many elites and elite is basically kind of power holders in society so it doesn't have to be like the top 0.1 percent it's people who are like you know have a good law law degree and they have the earn maybe 100 grand a year in the states or you like and there's lots of different realms where you can be elite right you have some kind of influence and power and so there's too many elites and not enough spaces for them Right. There's too many, for example, in the States, there's way too many people with PhDs and not nearly enough places for them to go. And that's true in lots of other areas as well. There's way, there's way too few top law firm positions or way too many people with law degrees. And so they're, they're fighting for like this, like in musical chairs, there's not enough seats to go around. And then combined with, in our case, like declining wages in the West over the last like 30, 40 years so that people are getting poorer especially working class people and they're pissed off about it quite understandably <laughs> and so you get people like trump is a great example where you get an elite then speaking the language of the pissed off people in in the working classes and that's kind of a pretty just crazy combination right and that's happened throughout history but equally there are times through history where the elites have managed to coordinate with each other and agree to have less so that everyone else can have more. And one example of this is in the the progressive era in the States before the Second World War, and then also the New Deal, which was basically to kind of get out of the Depression. A, a lot of the elites, so the people who were in the kind of top, you know, 1%, and I believe even more, of earners were like, yeah, we'll have, they had like 90% tax rate on the highest income. And that was voluntary. That was the politicians, the business owners all getting together and being like, we have to do this for our own self-interest and survival, but never, and sometimes out of a sense of civic duty. And, you know, it's always, people are complex. There's all lots of different motivations going on, but that ushered in a period of like stability and a lot of kind of 
transformation that the the 60s never would have happened without that right like so so you have so in a sense so way back to your question that you started this with of like there's something really uncomfortable about like tech bros taking ayahuasca and being like oh i've just unlocked the secrets of bitcoin i'm gonna go like you know that i think that is for many people uncomfortable because there's a sense of like there's real deep systemic problems that need to be solved and what we don't need is the rich to get richer However, at the same time, there is an argument to be made of being like, hey, people in positions of power and influence with the right framework, psychedelics can be very transformative and with enough complexity and enough humility and a sense of like, above all, that we're connecting to something greater than ourselves, regardless of what your religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs might be, that what psychedelics can do is, is <laughs> remind us that we're not the center of the universe, you know, and so that capacity of them i think is probably the most promising and then that needs to be integrated well so it's no easy task and it's going to take probably a whole kind of cultural psychedelic cultural movement to do that but the point is like we can't leave out the grassroots and we also can't leave out the elites because the real social transformation is gonna have to probably require transformation of both the bottom up and top down levels. Mm -hmm. I also really liked the framework that you mentioned in the book, the physicals versus the virtuals. And I'm kind of curious, how does this fit into this elite map that you just kind of laid out? That's a, that's an idea by NS Lyons, and it, it fits perfectly into that map. So NS Lyons is a, is a brilliant substack. He's actually a China expert who writes under a pseudonym because he works in Washington. He's got a brilliant substack called The Upheaval, which is excellent. And he, yeah, he wrote an article about the Canadian trucker protests, which were a couple about a year and a bit ago. <laughs> and he was pointing out that like, basically there's the, he, he sees this kind of split in society between like the, the virtuals who are people like, frankly, like me and probably you who can do their jobs virtually. And are we, we make our money through the trade of ideas and concepts and you know sometimes it might be practical stuff as well but that's that's the kind of knowledge economy right that many people are engaged in and then there's people whose whose jobs involve their bodies and whose jobs would make society run like truck drivers for example but in the case that he was talking about or farmers and increasingly there's this divide between the two which is a really kind of a sad divide because it's very classist, but also increasingly the physicals and the virtuals live in different worlds. So you have the virtuals living in this kind of world of abstraction and concepts and theory. And when when something like the trucker strike happens, it, it, it kind of reminds me of the Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. It's like you have these elites in the city who are like really concerned with their like increasingly specific, narrow social concerns, wearing their crazy clothing, whatever it might be. And then you have the people who are actually like mm -hmm. down and out and the elites just cannot hear what they're saying. They can't listen. They don't understand what they're saying because they're so detached from it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the argument he's making. So that's very much in, in line with what Turchin is arguing too, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which also speaks to, you know, the, the quality of our maps that we have to navigate the landscape. And I mean, you keep good company, I can tell, you know, and I'm I actually I'm curious to know if you had to name like the five most influential people that have influenced your thinking. Do you think you could like name them off the cuff pretty easily? Yeah, I could give it a go. And they're going to be very different from each other, probably. I'm going to say John Verveke springs to mind 
cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto who put out a series called Awakening for the Meaning Crisis a few years ago, and we interviewed him on Rebel Wisdom and then done a lot of work with him. And, and I just think he's, his, his framework is brilliant and his insight. I would say Alan Watts, massive influence, Terence McKenna as well. Anne Shulgin is a huge influence on me, especially her work around the shadow. That's been really transformative in my life. How, am I, how many am I on? I'm on four. And I will put a flag in the fifth one and see, see if that, that person comes, because I can't, no, no one's coming to mind, but that's, that's a bit of a spread. Yeah, I was kind of curious if Ken Wilbur made it on that list. Ken Wilbur would definitely be on the list, absolutely. And yes, and I actually had a chance to, to hang out with him again recently and was just reminded of like, wow, yeah, the integral framework and the whole idea of holding multiple perspectives at once and understanding that there's multiple different ways that we develop as human beings and that there's a difference between states we go into and stages of that development. All of these ideas are written, were really foundational for me, actually. So yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Nora Bateson is another person who who springs to mind and her concept of warm data, which I can talk about a little bit in, in, in a bit, but just in terms of the maps, you know, like, mm -hmm. are we using the right maps? The problem is that no map, the map is not the territory is a famous phrase, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. and why I like Nora Bateson's work is that it really looks at this idea of warm data, which is the idea that information changes across different contexts, you know, just in the same way that like, we're different when we're at work or then when we're with our partner or when we're with our friends. And like what's true in one context is not necessarily true in another context. Doesn't mean there's no such thing as foundational truth. It just means that truth is fluid and dynamic as well as like solid. And so that means that if we're trying to map out complexity and figure out like what is going on in the world, like how do we, how do we navigate like a really tricky topic? It means that we have to do it by looking at it, not like a car engine, of like, okay, well, this is like an engine that we have to figure out what's going wrong in here and, and go into it because that's completely not the case. That's not how reality is. Instead, we have to look at it like a dynamic unfolding process, like an ecosystem, like a complex system. And I think that that is the, like, so we need like complexity maps. So it's like, we need maps that are very psychedelic because they're like, like every time I've looked at a map on psychedelics, it's like moving and shifting, right? And we need maps like that in a sense of like, that are shifting and dynamic and, and constantly changing, which means we need to be flexible and dynamic and constantly changing as human beings. Like I think those are the skills that are being asked of us at this time mm -hmm. in history. Yeah, and it makes me think of developing the metacognitive awareness that we're holding a frame and a map in the first place. Absolutely. And, and it is interesting because I think about this in terms of psychology, for example, and just how few people, men, actually, in the past, you know, 100 years have influenced this entire field, you know, and I think like, I love Graf's map and his interpretation. And, you know, I just want to encourage people to have the sense of agency that just because they're being handed to you doesn't mean that that is truth and the only way. You know, that that it's like, that's why I'm like, wow, I wish more people contributed to psychology so we'd have a more like diverse perspective. And it wasn't like all Jungian frameworks Absolutely. that that we've just been like, oh, this is truth. Absolutely. And that's really culturally specific because of like what was just what was going on in Esalen in the sort of 70s and who was talking to who. And like, it's not written down in stone by any means, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like. Yeah, and there's a lot of different 
ways to approach these states that we like we have so much opportunity to explore right now at this time in like let's say psychedelic history or the history of psychedelics i think this is now the time to be like okay let's widen our frames and include those things but like also you know personally while i really admire groff's work i'm not really convinced by the idea of the, the perinatal matrix i find it quite reductionist i'm like what everything is about birth everything seems to come down to that single single process i'm just super skeptical of any reductionism i think there's also a lot of strange flaws in transpersonal psychology as well even though it's a really valuable field like no field has got all the answers and and likewise as, as ken wilbur famously says no one's smart enough to be wrong all the time was it <laughs> i could have probably got it wrong but yeah basically like we're all going to have some aspect of the truth and also each of these disciplines and approaches is going to but we need like you said a metacognitive awareness that so we have like a frame of frames right yeah and then we have to be careful not to get like caught in the meta whereas of course zooming out perpetually right yeah because then what we i think what we also need and what we're lacking so badly in culture which really has an impact on the psychedelic renaissance is a foundational sense of what is reality like what what is real is reality consciousness is it matter is it both what because that then really like the, our cultural story around that everything else comes out of that in my view yeah. because that dictates our our values and our culture and then the, the kind of incentives structures we have designed the kind of corporations we end up having the laws we decide are the right laws to pass the wrong laws but i think you know we've seen this like whole movement in the west of postmodernity of of this kind of getting rid of the grand narratives and that was really necessary because a lot of those grand narratives were were really just grand narratives for one group of people and really shut out uh, pretty much everyone else that was a really necessary movement in, in culture but it is impossible for human beings to come to work together survive and cohere properly without some sense of why we're doing any of that like mm -hmm. some foundational story and we've gone past the point i think where we're going to have a foundational story like we had 2000 years ago it was like okay everything was started like this by this god and that that time has passed so we need these new deeper but nevertheless foundational stories for culture and we don't really have those right now yeah. you know a lot of yeah that, that's i think a big part of the problem i want to talk about reality. It's funny because when I wrote this chapter in my book about frames and metacognitive awareness, I said, okay, I'm going to use reality in quotation marks, but I won't use it for the whole book, but I'll just state it here because it's like, what are we actually talking about? Before we talk about that, though, I'm curious. Um, so there's this, you know, the quality of maps, which I also want to say it's like, with so many new people entering the psychedelic, I don't like using the word renaissance personally. I'm more into like the emergence into the Western adoption at this pace. I call it the Poland era. And there's a lot of people who are entering into this space for the first time and who, again, it's like that same analogy of like the psychology, you know, going to study psychology. And I'm saying like, don't not go and study, like go and study if you 
you feel inspired to, but the people training you, they came up with that based on their direct experience of navigating the terrain, you know? So that is first and foremost where we learn. And if you have the foundational skill sets of becoming aware of your biases, aware of the frame, aware of your, you know, cultural context, that actually you're setting yourself up for the long haul in a much healthier position to assist anyone else than just being of the indoctrinated mindset that I need to go and get this degree now that is I'm going to study and check the box and still maintain the status quo of what the fuck we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. No, no I, <laughs> I, I really agree. And, and you know, there's a, there is some kind of balance between some very important skills that you can learn in psychology and, and medicine and the skills you learn from being a psychonaut and being very skilled at navigating these spaces. And you need ideally both, but very few people have both of those. Very few people have, you know, 20 years of, of deep state experience. You know, Frederica Meckel uh, Fisher, or she's somehow, I think she goes by Frederica Meckel a lot. She's one of those people where she, she wrote a book called Therapy with Substance. You know, she's a Swiss psychiatrist who was working at, or cl clinical psychologist, not sure. She was working underground for years and then she got busted and then spent a year in jail and then came out and wrote her book but she was like well i've been busted now so i can like share it's really fascinating like her her work you know like she really she spoke on my symposium at breaking convention and it was just really cool to watch her look at like and this is the what this is the i think an ideal approach whether you're psychologically trained or not just as as a person she was looking at like being really curious and and being scientific about like the different types of psychedelic retreats she went to you know over the years i mean like this one we did this and we dosed at this time and then we had a sharing circle at this time and she was like and that i didn't really like that and then she moved you know so she kind of like was analyzing hey, what worked what didn't and then she's got a lot of really you know good psychological training she's also you know controversial she's controversial because of mm -hmm. her, her approach differs to, to other people's as well so i think and she you know she talks a lot about state training state competence is actually the, the terminology she uses which i think is a is a pretty cool phrase and so, yeah, I think you're pointing to this really deep tension in the psychedelic world between who who gets to decide what they are, and then ultimately it's about power. Who's going to have the power over them, and how is that power distributed? And you know, obviously, like psychiatrists, very often in my experience, assume that they should have the power because they're at the top of the pecking order of the current medical paradigm for mental health. But I, I disagree with that pretty fundamentally. I think they should have power in their domain. Certainly, and there's things that psychiatrists and psychologists can do that really they should be doing, working with really vulnerable populations and really complex cases. But that isn't universal at all. And there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of conversation needed that has power front and center. Because if you're not talking about power, we're not really talking about the issue that's at stake in my view, right? Like mm -hmm. it is about power dynamics and who's going to decide, you know, let's say you feel depressed and you feel like life is kind of pointless. If you went to a psychiatrist, you were going to get one answer. And if you went to a priest or a rabbi or an imam, you're going to get a totally different answer. Mm -hmm. And basically what we're being asked to do with psychedelics is be like, the medical one is the right one. That's the official one. And of course that's the power structure in a lot of Western culture, but, you know, psychedelics have this wonderful way of subverting <laughs> the structures. Exactly. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing yeah. that as they enter the, even the medical system.
Yeah, well, this is why I feel so passionate about talking about the frames and highlighting them and illuminating them and getting people to actually take their glasses off and look at them for what they are, because it is very unfortunate that I do see a lot of division in our, you know, psychedelic, sacred plant medicine camp, indigenous lineage, not indigenous, you know, LSD is kind of like getting cast to the outskirts these days. It's just so interesting. And a lot of people do have a lot of judgment for the other camp, but it's actually embracing diversity and embracing the complexity, not trying to say, okay, everyone, we should all agree to call it this, but to say, wow, there's so much beauty in the diversity and the beauty in different lineages, beauty in language, beauty in culture, and to celebrate that and to actually not just surround ourselves. And I'm sure you thought about this a lot around the community aspect. And like, if you are just in an echo chamber with the same frame of reference with other people, that's like going to amplify, you know, whatever it is that you're working through good or bad, you know? And so it's actually, can we seek out people with different frames and have conversations and stay curious? And I love how much you say the word curiosity, because we all think about growth mindset and we take it as valid, but actually curiosity mindset is a valid mindset that you can learn Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, all, yes to all of that, right? Because we need this diversity of perspective, of background, of approach. How to have something true? That's what that's what I'm. I love about breaking convention is that we're properly multidisciplinary, and we. It's like the only psychedelic event in the world that really brings together everyone, to my knowledge, right? Having like that, we have artists, we have scientists, we have historians, we have you know, uh, performers, kind of everyone. And so the, so that's really, really important, but so is being okay with strife and disagreement, right? So, so because we need to be in order to have the conversations, we need to be able to be like, we're in, okay, let's say sort of plant medicine people, and then like hardcore biomedical psychiatrists who think it should only be done in clinical trials. Like there has to be, I think it helps to just recognize like, we're not necessarily rowing in the same direction and there is conflict here and if we can name that then we can work through it and that means we can start having the conversation because otherwise it gets like there's often an assumption i think in a lot of communities but i see it a lot in the psychedelic world and a lot of spiritual worlds that unity is good and separation is bad and that really bothers me because you can't a you can't have unity without separation they they imply one another it's kind of that taoist insight it also ends up masking the importance of the uncertainty, the discomfort, the dynamic opposition between things. And that, that's actually, there's a, a jazz theorist, Greg Thomas, who I, I, I've worked with a bunch of times and quote in the book, and he and his wife, Jewel, they run this jazz leadership project and they have this concept that they teach people of antagonistic cooperation, which comes from Greg's mentor, whose name escapes me now, famous, famous critic and, and jazz theorist. But that antagonistic cooperation is like in jazz, you have this collective amazing thing happening that's in flow, but actually it's happening through the 
antagonism between like the trumpet player who's like blasts out a solo and then the sax player's like oh yeah well check this out i'm gonna try and best that solo and then they play and then the drummer's like yeah whatever i'm gonna go like and so you have all these people basically competing with each other but they're doing it for for a higher purpose there's something the music and the flow of the music is of a higher order than anyone's individual solo and even though people are exercising their individual like attitude in it there's something really amazing about what happens when we do it for a higher purpose and back to the point i made earlier in the psychedelic community in particular or probably in culture more generally we can't agree on what is that higher order that we are striving for like what what is culture for like that's why i have a bugbear with the well-being industry as a whole because i'm like what are we being well for like there's no well-being unless there's a sense of like okay there's perhaps a feeling of i feel okay but what is that really? Is that really what we want? Or do we want to thrive and want to feel alive? We want to feel driven and purposeful and like we're we're growing as individuals and as a culture. If we don't have a sense of what we're growing towards, we don't know. So that's actually, I created this survey, which I've never sent out, which I really actually hope someone like, if anyone wants to pick it up and, you know, run with it, I would be super open to that. But it's called the Psychedelic Value Survey. And I spent quite a lot of time with help from some some people at Imperial College to to pull together like a survey on values and metaphysical beliefs and a bunch of other questions and moral foundations to go okay what is the psychedelic community like what are the values because unless we know what the values are we're not going to know if, is there a shared value or a shared sort of baseline directionality to it mm-hmm. and i i still think that i still do plan on doing something with it at some point but that the reason i spent so long on that and the reason I haven't sent it out is because I realized like, oh, it's going to take a lot of time and effort to sift through all the responses. And then I was like, I want to do it in different languages. And then yeah, it's, a, it's a whole thing. But it's, it's ready to go, basically. And I think that's so important. It's just like, wait a minute. If we're like to your point about reality, in quotation marks, if we can't, like, what are we, are we even talking about the same thing? Are we even sharing the same values? And I'd love to know that. I don't know, you know, what, what even is the psychedelic community? Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay, one, I'm going to pin quote unquote reality for just like one more second, but I am, I want to come back to it because I have a specific question around that. But do you think that all the diversity of names that we give psychedelics and diversity of lenses, whether it's an indigenous worldview or a Western worldview, medical, psycho-spiritual, you name it, do you think we could put a common denominator on all of it as we are literally just sentient beings trying to make sense of what it means to be like navigating this literal like tons of information and sensory data in any given moment and they're just tools for what it means to be alive like could you would you say that or is that even too presumptuous no i think it's a really i mean it's a really important question and i think I mean, I don't think like something like that would be that far off because it has to be universal. It has to be something everyone shares. I think our innate humanity, right? What it, like you, this is what you're pointing to, what it is to be human. That is, I think, very beautiful and universally true and always there. And so somehow having a meta narrative around humanness, I think would be really beautiful. Nature is also a really good candidate for an overarching and I'm probably maybe even the best one because A, it's beyond us humanism is humanism this kind of like the focus on like getting rid of a sort of like metaphysical thing and just focusing on human beings and and being really humanistic and like yes you know we're inherently good etc 
which we see, you know, like Western cultures kind of adopted as a belief system, it doesn't really cut the mustard because transcendence is an aspect of, of life, like going beyond ourselves and connecting with something greater than ourselves in whatever capacity as human beings is foundational to being alive. Mm -hmm. And that could be the birth of a child, it could be the death of a parent, it could be a deep psychedelic state, it could be spontaneous mystical experience in the woods, like this is part of deep part of what it is to be human. So it needs to include that. I think, yeah, I think something related to nature and humanity and ideally humanity's place in nature are good candidates because we also have to do that to survive. So, so I think, you know, and it doesn't trigger a lot of religions either to be like, Hey, let's focus on nature because all of them are like, yeah, our God made that. It's like, okay, great, whatever. That's great. <laughs> let's connect to it. Yeah. Right. Um, do you ever get overwhelmed with the reality that like, or hold the polarity that it, it matters and it also doesn't matter? Like in a, a several hundred million years, the earth is going to be swallowed by the sun. And therefore, like, is this worth all of our time, attention, intellectual devotion, cognitive capacities, or should we just like go swimming in the river? <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> wrestle with that a bunch. And then I guess it has all these different layers for me where on the one hand, from like the cosmic perspective, it doesn't really matter as, as, as far as I see it. it doesn't, our, our, our unique concerns at this time in history in comparison to a greater whole and a greater kind of cosmic whole, I think that, you, you know, you could say it doesn't matter. This was an experience I had on the, the DMT extended state trial in my final dosing, which I, which I also included in the book is was this sense of an overview effect of like seeing the vastness of reality and it putting everything into perspective but also it wasn't like an ego dissolution because I, my ego was just still there but it was definitely ego reframing because my ego was very tiny and so in that sense that's quite meaningful to me and actually quite relaxing if i think about that and that kind of puts me into right relationship at least for a few moments <laughs> with, with the rest of reality until the crazy game goes on and then you kind of get distracted. But yeah, the, the sort of, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't fall so much into the nihilism side of it as much because I don't know, maybe I'm optimistic or maybe I'm just in denial about the state of the world, but I do think that there is something like, I, I really have a lot of faith and belief in, in the ingenuity of the human spirit when faced with challenge and also in the fact that we're not the only thing that's going on and our individual consciousness and problem solving efforts are not the only thing going on in, in the picture. Okay, perfect segue into two words, reality and entities. I knew we were going to circle back around to entities. Okay, um, so first, I'm curious, like, sometimes I have this experience, I would say probably about Oh, gosh, it was early on. It was probably about 20 years ago that I really started having this narrative of like, is the psychedelic experience opening up our perception to the true nature of reality, true in quotation marks, and showing us, you know, the subatomic interplay of what's really going on. And we just can't perceive it in normal waking state consciousness, but it's there. And the these medicines shift our perception in a way that allows us to see what it really is. What what do you think of that narrative? Yeah. God, I really, you know what, I ping pong between that and then also <laughs> other narratives all the time. But, you know, what's what the first thing that comes up for me is that that is the narrative that many 
psychedelic using groups around the world have had like you know gr those groups in the amazon and jeremy narby points out that that often they have this di this kind of dichotomy between what's seen and unseen <laughs> but that's that's a really interesting position because it's not like our dichotomy of like the soul he points out where we're like the soul is sort of like in a different realm or this realm right like there's like the realm of the spirit and the realm of of us like in a lot of those traditions it's actually like no no it's all this, it's the realm you just can't see the spirits that animate the plants you can't see the spirits unless you smoke mapacho or drink ayahuasca then you'll see what was there already and irish folklore has has this kind of has that dynamic a bit as well so we see it kind of repeated in lots of different places around the world so it's very old that that sense and i do think there's a decent likelihood that when we say take dmt and we encounter beings and entities that we are perceiving through our own lens was i'm pretty sure of that whatever we're seeing is very heavily influenced by our own lens but we are seeing something that is there or some kind of information at the very least that is independently arising of of our own un unique individual perception of it I'm also open to the idea that it's all just incredibly sophisticated inner exploration. These are all like Jungian archetypes that we're kind of encountering. Although I somehow don't really believe that. <laughs> I've mean, experienced so many times, but I'm open to it. It's, well, I think the only way to, to really navigate those kind of spaces and stay sane is to keep that curiosity, openness, and try and hold the multiple perspectives at once without collapsing into any which one because anytime you collapse it into like okay these are definitely Jungian archetypes or like these are definitely alien entities that i'm communicating with it's just bad sense making you're just going to end up finding contradictions somewhere that don't make sense and then getting all sorts of confused and tangled and if you try and stay attached to your previous idea it's going to cause pain so i think it's better to not cop out and be like I, I believe nothing like let's just see what arises but to actually hold the possibility of all of them and stay curious and stay kind of you know moving with them and you know in some sense it doesn't have that satisfaction of being like eureka i know what the entities are and now i'm going to come back and tell everyone it's going to change the world that's not going to happen right so it means that we have to be comfortable with uncertainty which is also a skill set we need for the times we live in so it's another example of one of the lessons we can learn from the state training of psychedelics and apply to to actually like finding a way to thrive in the world we live in today i really appreciate the emphasis on just holding it all it one of my primary influential lenses that i apply to psychedelics and to life has been Tibetan Buddhism, for sure, it's had a huge influence. So I had made it, immediately thought about, you know, fluidity and the, the nature of impermanence and water logic versus rock logic. And when we can actually train the water logic that it's fluid, we don't have to grip it as truth, but we can actually just let it flow, but not say it doesn't exist in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really nice metaphor. I love that. Yeah. I love this quote you quoted Eric Davis in your book, and he said, psychedelics sit at the nexus between science and spirituality because they are a molecule matter that changes our mind's consciousness. I just uh, just love that quote so much. It, it is like we mind-body complex sit at the bridge between the unseen and the seen. And so, yeah, curious your thoughts on that. 
Well, I mean, just firstly, like it's one of those quotes where Eric said it when I interviewed him for the book and I was like, that's so good. And it's so obvious, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone else say it before. So yeah, so no, absolutely. I, I think that is what partly why they cause such havoc as well in, 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 as they enter the West, because we, we are all tangled in the relationship between mind and matter. Like that's mm -hmm. one of the, I think the core tangles at the, at the heart of our discord and unhappiness. It's not the only thing. There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on as well, but like we haven't really resolved that well. And then now we have, you know, we had kind of classical physics and then quantum physics being like, oh, consciousness does seem to matter. We're not exactly sure how, and the universe does end up looking like this kind of incredible complex Taoist relational flow at the heart of things. So there's all these kind of contradictions that it brings up. And then amazingly, psychedelics also open us to experiences of that, like mm -hmm. that we have an experience that if you talk to a quantum physicist, be like, huh, that's interesting. That that sounds a lot like what we think might be going on. I'm also, I'm also really cautious not to over emphasize like the quantum physics thing, because I've, I've read a lot of really, really crappy new age stuff, which kind of like uses that to, to sort of like for manifestation or whatever it might be in, yeah. in a really oversimplified version that I think I, I, I disagree with. But at the same time, there is, there is something to that, that, you know, I love this idea, this potential that psychedelics are actually showing us what's happening and and it like a, like a, like you're saying at a different level of actual reality as it is and that we're seeing you know for example the idea of the holographic universe the idea mm -hmm. that the part every part of the universe contains a whole within it that's a very common psychedelic insight that people have you know independent mm -hmm. of, of familiarity with that idea or fractals you know this, mm -hmm. this kind of fractal nature of the universe there's so many fascinating insights that i think could tie in with like my, my hope is that the science and the spirituality they blend together in a new mm -hmm. way. And a lot of people are kind of working on that. And a lot of really great scientists argue that same thing, where it's like we need a new paradigm. But, you know, I think it was even Kuhn who created the term paradigm shift. I think it might have been him who said scientific progress happens one funeral at a time. Mm. You know, because <laughs> you have these embedded, fixed, narrow minded, reductionist views, not just in science, but everywhere. And ideally, as we grow, as mm -hmm. a, you know, grow to greater levels of complexity, those become something of the past that were necessary. And then something new comes. That, that, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I've thought about this a lot because I, I spent a solid five years really diving deep into metaphysics, quantum physics, and the word quantum now has really been adopted by the new age movement. And so it's like, are we talking about like Deepak Chopra quantum physics, Joe Dispenza quantum physics, or are we talking about like Brian Greene quantum physics? But it is interesting to think about like, okay, actually, if you become versed in the latest things theory of like quantum field theory that that actually does point to you know what we're what we're talking about and it's not to throw out you know all the more spiritual side of quantum physics that's okay too there's still some truth in it but we don't we do have to be so lucid in the sense making of it and so i i appreciate that and I do want to just ask you about your perspective of entities so i 
have tried. Like it just doesn't, it's not a word that I orient around. And I know so many people have had this overwhelming experience, like a large percentage of people that explore DMT have these encounters with entities. And, you know, I've really had so many moments of like, do they exist? Like, can I lean into this? Like, what is there? And it's just never been my experience in a different way. Like with ayahuasca, it's very different. You know, I have these, like just this, these beings that I feel like going and working on my brain, but I don't necessarily encounter them the way you describe them. And so I guess this kind of comes back around to like, is reality subjective? Are you projecting what's in your mind in the experience? And you refer to, you know, this loving teacher, the teaching presence. And I was like, I wonder if it's you, like, are you your own teaching presence? And was that your, your perspective that is it the DMT or is it just you and your psyche are the entities like independent of you? It makes me also think of um, um, what's that movie? Uh, Interstellar, you know, like we go into 5D and there are other beings there. And that was kind of making me think about what you were saying earlier about like the larger cosmological evolution. That's the assumption that only us on planet Earth are alive right now. And it doesn't matter if we get eaten by the sun. But what about everything else that exists that we don't know about? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, my short answer would be like, you know, in my metaphysics and my belief or, or experience, I say my direct experience has led me to the pr perspective that there is only us. There is only consciousness. There is only a single consciousness. Like there, there is a single universal consciousness of which there's just mind-bogglingly, mind-bogglingly complex amount of individual expressions of that. So, in some sense nothing we're encountering from that perspective is not me right however th there is a kind of like you know in the same way like when we're talking we are both individuals and i can't see what you're thinking right now you know i can infer but there is a certain like very clearly part of what's going on is that there is uniqueness and like a whole universe in you that i don't have access to <laughs> So in terms of like the teaching presence, so like that was basically like, and I have this in every psychedelic experience, I have a dialogue with the experience. The nature of that teaching presence is always, I would say it's like a higher self, but it's also somewhat alien. This is where it gets like cut tricky <laughs> because okay. when I asked it at one point, it was like, I was like, what are you? It was like, you, but not you and we, but not we. And I was like, yeah, that's really, that's a real trickstery response but i think that was true like it, it, in some sense we are connecting to ourselves but i do think we're connecting something beyond ourselves in the sense of our current awareness of ourselves but you know i guess the question then is like are those entities as real and independently or let's say dependently arising as you or me or my dog right i think they my where i land I, firstly i don't know and no one knows and no one possibly no one will ever know right that's the other thing but in terms of like, like taking seriously the idea that they, they might be i think I, my sense is that possibly they are and that there is somehow a synergy going on between our consciousness and some other aspect of consciousness and that is as independent as another person is now what to do with that information Mm, what are we going to do with that information, right? This is part of my experience on, on that with on the DMT trial where it was like, so what? 
Like, if so, so what? Like, we, you know, part of the message was like, we can't even get on on Twitter. <laughs> so what does it even matter if there's like conscious aliens out there? Like, it would matter in the sense of like, if we knew we weren't alone in the universe, I think it would have a very profound effect on humanity. But I don't think trying to get everyone, also however many billion of us there are right now to sort of like encounter DMT entities when it's actually only about half of people, according to one study, even encountered them in the first place. So I don't know. I don't know how useful it, it actually is in a sense. And it might just be that in the West, we have no idea how to kind of gather and take information out of that. But to be really blunt about it, the cultures that to our knowledge, the cultures that have been in contact with these entities didn't come back with like solutions for cold fusion or even solutions of how to have a kind of utopian existence amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. They're just as tangled as we are. So what do we do with it? I think that, you know, this is the argument I kind of make in the book, like we, we need to learn how to be human. We need to be learn how to be better humans and deeply human and like deeply connect, connected to our humanity. And so I do think encountering other beings is important and I do think it can lead us there, but it needs to lead us there to like that maturing process rather than like, oh, we're going to go to high. There's a lot of DMT world stuff like, oh, we're going to go to hyperspace. We're going to encounter the entities and we're going to like, I'm like, yeah, okay. And then what? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 To what end? Yeah. Yeah. End. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I like how you said trickster just very briefly. Sometimes I hold the loose narrative that these tryptamines are very trickstery in their energy because they're trying to flip our minds upside down and backwards and like as a process of breaking our frames and breaking our sense of what we know to be true. They're kind of like spinning you around and around and around until you're like, oh, wait a second. What is reality? <laughs> yes, yes, they are trickstery. And I I love that about them, actually. And I think they're having a trickstery effect on the collective as they go into culture as well. All the, you know, it, it just has a, to me, and this could be my own bias, but the whole thing, the whole conversation around psychedelics, mainstreaming and decrim and everything and all the intensity of the whole world of psychedelics has a real trickstery psychedelic quality to it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyone listening to this, don't feel like you know the way or the only way or it's that way because they reveal so much more of what we don't know. That's the point. And if you're and that's a good narrative train to get on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. OK, I know you have to go. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah, let's go. Go on. Okay, one one more, and then we have to schedule again because we didn't even touch AI or any of the other really yeah, big things. Absolutely, I'd love to do that. I would love this to be part one of of, of a conversation for sure. Okay, yeah. great. So I consider you to be a psychedelic entrepreneur. Do do you, does that resonate for you? Does that well, land? I mean, yeah. Like I, I, you know, the associations with the more like pharma side of it are a little bit like I don't. But in terms of like, I can't. Yeah, I'd say that is kind of an accurate description in, in some ways. Yeah. Is there anything that you are implementing in your life to build a new frame for a way that you're doing business? I mean, you're running a business, you're running a book, you're running programs. And I think about this a lot, too, as a psychedelic entrepreneur who is trying to advocate for systems wide change. And I'm like, OK, well, what am I doing to implement even small things or mindset shifts into the way that I am navigating business and where I'm meeting my growth edge in that dialogue just between me and myself to be right with myself? And so I'm curious, like, where are you meeting your growth edge around that and anything that you feel like sharing? 
Yeah. So there's a there's a couple of things. I mean, there's two. I guess what one is is moving away from a sort of focus on quantity towards a focus on quality. Like trying to orient myself to the quality of just quality. What's the quality of what I'm producing? What's the quality of the connections? What's the quality of relationships? Rather than the quantity of how much I can make, how much I can produce, etc. Which is kind of what the dominant cultural push is, even though people know and respect and feel quality when they when when we see it, we all know it. This is Robert Piercek's insight with Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is just such a mind blowing book and, and insight. So there's a kind of sense of like quality is real. And if quality is real, it also says a lot about consciousness potentially, but that's a whole, that's maybe for part two. But so I'm trying my best to do that. And then also to just generally manage the anxiety of the uncertainties and scarcity mindset, like trying to mitigate like my, my tendency to be like, go, go, go more, more, more. I, I'm not saying I have a kind of safety thing. I, I think a lot of what drives my forward motion as well as just ambition i think and, and wanting to express my ideas and get them out there you know there's that that side of it which is the positive side i think the negative side is a sense of not feeling safe like and not feeling like hey how can i have like mainly like economically like how can i economic safety how can i how can i you know think five steps ahead and whatever it might be like have my fingers in lots of different pies so that if one of them doesn't work out then that's fine so that is a protective quality. I know where it comes from, but at the same time, it's a real bummer <laughs> when it starts running the show. So I'm trying to gently ease off of that. And that ties in with the the question of quality of, because what's the quality of my life, the quality of my experience, the quality of what I'm bringing into the world. And so that's my ongoing edge and process and fairly new. It's only been like a year or so that I've really consciously been like, okay, I'm going to try and make quality the, the thing I'm orienting towards. Yeah. Mm, I appreciate that. I would say I'm in a very similar process. I've been moving from time management to energy management. And I, when I opened up this season, I just let my listeners know uh, I'm doing solo episodes and this takes a really long time. I'm a slow processor, so I can't put out an episode every week. It's probably going to be every month. And I have to adjust to being okay with that because the system is like more, 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 but I actually don't want to put out more. I just want to put out really well-developed ideas that take time yeah but then they're of a higher quality like mm -hmm. you're 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 what you're putting out is of a higher quality like i really enjoyed this for example like that i felt like this has been a just like the you know i don't know like the, the flow of the conversation etc has been really enjoyable and, and had a feeling of like depth to it depth is mm -hmm. such a nice word with, that goes with quality mm -hmm. i think so i think I think like, I think hopefully we're on the right track with that orientation. <laughs> yes. And we'll, we'll have to d soothe ourselves that we won't get left behind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate just how much time that you've dedicated to the map and the conceptual frameworks. It takes a lot of dedication to learn in a multidisciplinary way. And it's something that I dedicate myself to. So I, I really get how much time you put into cultivating yourself. And I really appreciate it. And I just want to say that I see all the efforts and the quality that you're putting out. And it's had an impact on my life on many others as well. So just genuine, heartfelt. Thank you. I can really feel that. Thank you so much for, for that reflection. I, I really do appreciate that. Yeah. 
Hi, friends. If you enjoyed this episode featuring Alexander Biner, I would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. And please remember to subscribe so that you can get notified when I put out an episode, especially because I'm not publishing on a regular schedule every single week. Because like Ali mentioned at the end of this episode, I'm also committed to bring you quality over quantity. And if you would like to join me in September for Transilience, a program that I am so thrilled about, Applications are currently open and you can find a link to apply in the show notes. All right, friends, once again, my name is Laura Dawn and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time.